throw the housing starts are are about 11.5% below where they were in, last year as of September. So this came out mm-hmm. on October 19th. So 11.5% below where they were last year, 8.1% below where it was last month. Uh, those are not good housing start numbers. Um, however, the housing completion numbers year over year are still up. Yes. Uh, which means that about, more houses are hitting the market right now at a time that nobody's buying. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure. And uh, my voice, this is Jake, is a bit more radio quality because I am, uh, I'm not sure if you noticed the Wall Street Journal article, decade-long record number of flu hospitalizations. Well, I'm not hospitalized, but I have the flu, so I'm probably not going to be speaking a whole lot this week. That's my first disclosure. So if you need to mask up to listen to us, uh, go go right ahead. The, the uh, airwaves, I, I hear that flu is airborne, so it may travel through the airwaves. Uh, of course, if they if they have their antiviral software running, they're probably in pretty good shape. Should be good, yeah. Unless it's Kaspersky, that's Russian, and then they're going to get invaded. So don't do that. Right. So uh, that's the, the, the next disclosure should be that we are strange. If you didn't get that from the statements we just made, then there is disclosure. We're also bald and bearded. Uh, the personal wealth coach is also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm giving fiduciary advice we can't give fiduciary advice on the air though we have to give education on the air fiduciary advice means to be customized and in the best interest of the person the advice is being given to and it also has to be given with some modicum of privacy where um it's a little difficult to do on the radio Though uh, the two listeners may say, hey, nobody else is listening. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, we're also, I also just said that uh, the firm is an SEC registered investment advisory firm. Yes. The SEC doesn't say that we're somehow cool because of that. They are not giving us any kind of, um, what, approval, um, sense of, of responsibility maybe, but they don't. Give us anything that's that we don't have a badge. We're not representing that the government says we're good people. That's just who we're registered with. Though if they gave us a badge, that'd be cool. We could use it in a debate. There. A badge? How do yes. we use it in a debate? Oh, you haven't been following politics. I won't get into it then. Well, I try to stay away from eight legged arachnid bloodsuckers. Poly, that's where you mini. Mini. And then ticks. Mini ticks. Poly actually means changeable, but many can work. Changeable, well, change, many changeable ticks are just almost as bad as yeah, many ticks. Yeah, ticks are just not fun. And that's why we don't, we don't like politics very much. Uh, you want to handle the next disclosure? Uh, the information that we present on this radio, this educational radio program, which because we don't do, we don't give financial planning advice and individual investment advice on the program. 
has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said sources. Although, Jake will make a warranty and a guarantee that anything we say nothing about, we have said nothing about. I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. So there. it's incomplete. That, that, that is, uh, I, I am giving a full warranty and guarantee of incompleteness of incomplete information. Um, the last disclosure, until we think of another one, is that we don't pay for this radio program. Um, we are not paid to do the radio program. The firm does advertise on the station, but so does the station. Both of us are advertising in partnership for this program. Why do we do it? For which we are not paid and for which we do not pay. Right. Now, why do we do it? I don't know. Some form of insanity, the feeling like we have to give back. Do we get some benefit from it? Absolutely. People know who we are. And a lot of times people hear us on the air and say, hey, I, I think I should check those guys out. Um, the, the thing I should remind you of, though, is that we deal with relatively high net worth and generally people with higher net worths don't look in the phone book or Google or listen to a radio program to find an advisor. I hate to break this to you, but there are no phone books anymore. Wait a minute. I found one in my attic last week. Yeah, well, there are no up-to-date phone books anymore. That is is correct. So (laughs) if they were finding advice or advisors from the phone book, they would probably be looking at places that don't exist anymore. Interesting. And we have several questions that were pre-input for us by our most faithful questioner, Inquisitor Preemptive, John. Preemptive questions. Yes. Um, he, he is on a quest, and so he questions. Uh, his first question is, China's cost of living versus the U.S.? And he's touching on an area that that I have distinct opinions in in the economic world. His question is, did the Chinese in this income range have money to buy one of the houses or apartments that we've been reading about in China? It comes from an article said Chinese economic challenge or China's economic challenge. And the area he has circled says, China's per capita national income reached $12,556 last year. Obviously, that's converted from yuan. But it puts it closer to the $13,205 annual income that the World Bank classifies as a minimum for high-income countries. It's a long-time goal for Beijing. China's GDP per person was 18% of the U.S.'s last year compared to 12% of the U.S.'s in 2012. Okay, his question again do the Chinese in this income range have money to buy one of the houses, apartments that we've been reading about in China? Answer is yes, but with some caveats. An average-sized house in China is 650 square feet or so. That is family resident. Um, now, they don't generally have very large families, but that's across the entirety of the country. That's not just talking about in apartments. Urban living is smaller. You're now talking about less, right in the 500 square foot range. So if you think about do, can they afford a house at that lower, you also then need to look at what a house is constructed with 
and uh, what appliances are inside of it, how well insulated, all the things that we just kind of take for granted in a house. Most of that stuff is severely lacking. Generally, no air conditioning, even in the hotter areas. Generally, uh, very small hot water or water heaters are much smaller. Uh, the shower and the toilets generally, if they don't share the same space, you're separated by inches. So the, these are the kind of, and if you have a toilet, that's a big deal. Usually it's, there's a hole in, in the floor with two footprints next to it that you stand on and a little sprayer that you use when you're done to wash it down. It doesn't flush like we do. They don't have gas capture plumbing as a standard there. There's a lot, a lot of things that they do differently, but all of those things at, that we do add to the price of the house. Now, we look at it and say, well, of course we want to capture gas from plumbing so our house doesn't blow up. But, you know, it costs money to do that. You have to have plumbers that come and do it. So can they afford the houses that we've been reading about? Yes. The problem with it is that, as we've said over the last several weeks and months, the majority of new houses that have already been paid for are incomplete, as in they're supposed to be ready to live in, are incomplete with some major component missing, like sometimes walls, (laughs) major components, things to hold your roof up. So no walls means no roof. Um, There's a lot going on that's on the wrong end of this. The opinionated part that I have is there's something called PPP in the economics world. It's the price parity, um, uh, purchase price parity, which means uh, if your day-to-day living expenses let you live in comfort in your local location, then what are your daily living expenses and compare them to somewhere else in the world and make them the same amount. This is a gross oversimplification, but... Say you live in um, the hills of North Carolina, uh, you compare yourself to someone that lives in downtown San Francisco, and you look at the daily living expenses that it takes to be, put air quotes around this, comfortable, and you say, well, it looks like they have the same level of comfort, so price PPP means that their per capita, their GDP in the hills of North Carolina is the same as the people that live in San Francisco. There's some serious, serious problems with that. I mean, just talking about code violations like gas capture devices for your plumbing, um, the, the amount of requirements in San Francisco to meet what is called comfort is much, much higher in California than it is in the hills of North Carolina. That's not saying anything about bad about the hills of North Carolina, but they're they're more wealthy in San Francisco on average than in the hills of North Carolina. You can look at it and say, well, they're living comfortable lives, so they're equivalent. The, where the problem comes is that economists have been saying China's GDP and China's economy is far larger than the United States because they live at some form of comfort and we live at some form of comfort and there's a lot more of them, so their economy must be bigger. Oh, I disagree with that. I think you can live comfortably at different standards 
but comparing ourselves today to who was an American in the 1940s, you probably had electricity. You did not have air conditioning. You did not have a refrigerator. You had an icebox. You did not have a dishwasher. You had less than one car on average. Um, Roads were not paved, uh, but we lived in comfort. If you ask people how comfortable they were, it, it looks like we're in the same level of comfort today. Um, I don't think we are. <laughs> okay, so that, we are that not was <laughs> the same level of comfort as as a person who lived in that time. I can tell you, we are a lot more comfortable. Today. <laughs> yes, I am not beating on my clothes while they're wet to get them clean. Uh, I have a machine that does that for me. I've automated the process. (laughs) And the per capita GDP for them and us is astronomically difficult. In other words, different. Uh, There's really, and and one of the things that I had on my list of things to talk about today is uh, there's pretty, there's a consensus arising among economists, which is always dangerous, that China will probably not ever pass the GDP of the United States. Right. That was the wrap-up I was going to do here. We've just got the GDP's GDP numbers for the United States, 2.6%. The GDP numbers from China, 3.9%, I think. But, uh, let's yeah, see. I think it was 3.9%. Uh, 3.9%, yeah, just looking at it now. So 3.9% of an economy that's 1-18th the size of the United States, they grew a lot less than we did at our 2.6% rate. One eighteenth? Is it that? I don't think per it's that capita, small, I think. Per capita. Oh, per capita. Yeah, I started so, to say their, their so, economy is not that much smaller than ours. But uh, yeah, so even when you compare their actual size, we grew faster than they did, even though their percentages were higher. And yeah. that's without going through the effort of doing massive discounts to that GDP, because that GDP number is likely mostly doctored it's put together by a political party which should tell you worlds by itself yeah and it doesn't represent any change from the kind of growth that they had when they had almost no covid and they weren't locking down everywhere because they'd locked down the borders which doesn't make sense because we're looking at an average of 300 million people on lockdown for the majority of 2022. They're different people. It's moving around, but they're mostly in the largest tech areas of the cities, which means that's the places where most of this growth has been coming from. That they And when their real estate market is collapsing at the same time, and that's 60% of their economy, the numbers aren't right here. Um, it's not hard for me to look at the numbers and go, yeah, somebody just drew that with a crayon and said, yep, that's our numbers. The fact that they delayed the report uh, during the, the CCP congressional coronation of uh, Xi, Zinping, Xi Jinping um, was I mean, that just that's icing on the cake. This is, well, um, no, I, I don't like the blue crayon. Let's use red crayon. Red is our color. Um, John was concerned about whether our pension funds look like the British pension funds. British, first off, let's look at the big picture. The average pension fund in the United States, and it's worse in municipal pension funds than it is in corporate pension funds, but it's bad in pension funds across the board. 
has about 75% of the assets that they need to pay out all the pensions based on uh, the present value and the probability of draws and using current interest rates and using all the formulas that folks use to figure whether you've got enough money to do something. And so they have to crank the returns up or they're going to run out of money. And if they run out of money in, on a, in a corporation, they run out of money in their pension plan, the corporation has to dig into their pockets, which hurts their earnings, which hurts their stock value, which is a nasty spiral, which can be nasty any way you approach it. So what pension funds have done across the board, particularly in the recent past, during this relatively long bull market we had through the end of last year, is to start leveraging. Now, in England and the United Kingdom, they leveraged a lot because, among other things, pension funds in the United Kingdom are generally mandated to increase their payouts with inflation, whereas in the United States, they're not. For instance, the Texas Teachers Retirement System and Municipal Systems in Texas pay a fixed amount of money, and if uh, inflation hits and they have some extra money, they may give you some extra, but they're not required to, which makes it a lot safer for them, a lot easier to meet the goals. The, the, what pension funds have to do is they have to determine what their value is, and they do something called present value and a discount rate, which has to do with current interest rates. The government requires it. it is, it's better than nothing, but it is extremely awkward. So that lower rates mean when, when their values are actually rising during lower rates, the government shows, has, winds up saying, your short pension money contribute. Um, and I won't go into that because that is a complex area. Suffice to say that in the United States, the leverage typically runs 7 to 15% in a pension fund. What's leverage? That's borrowed money. And it, in, in a typical pension fund in the United States, the money that's borrowed is mainly in what's called alternative investments, things like forest land and things like that that are in real estate that are not liquid. So, for example, let's just say that a pension fund in the United States owns some apartment complexes and they have mortgages on the apartment complexes. That is the kind of leverage you typically see in the United States. It's not always that way, and it's something that needs to be paid attention to. In the United Kingdom, there is a lot of borrowing, has been a lot of borrowing of money to buy government bonds, long-term government bonds in the United Kingdom by pension funds. Because as those bonds fluctuate in value, it all, they fluctuate the same way that the government requires the both our governments require pension funds to value their investments towards being able to meet their needs down the road. So it's very convenient. Uh, it, it it synchronizes the fund with the regulations. It makes it look really cool. Now, let me, but they have borrowed a lot of money in the United Kingdom to do that. Yeah. Let me explain that in a second. The United States government, the British government, the UK government says you're required to have a specific number in your uh, accounts that are invested in something that is producing income enough to deal with X percentage of your pension obligation. And that number changes every year and it's very political. It's not based in how the world of investing works very well. And most pensions are required to have very careful investments. Now, all of that said and what you said, let me say something else. These regulations are required on corporate pensions and on federal pensions, not on <clears throat> state 
pensions in the United States. That is States. correct. That is absolutely correct. Those are locally managed, and some of them have rather high degrees of borrowing that doesn't have to do with mortgages on apartments and so on. Theoretically, although I don't know that there's any law, I was looking for that. Texas would step in for a Texas state guaranteed pension, a Texas state pension for a municipality or a municipal organization or something like that. I don't know that there's a law that requires the state of Texas to do it, but it's, I know in the, in the state funds, they do actually, the legislature does back them. So there's a great deal of safety there that the, the British don't have. But the, what happened was, as interest rates have been rising dramatically this year, the value of bond portfolios fall. As interest rates go up, the market value of a portfolio falls. If you have leverage on your bond portfolio, you've borrowed money, you're on margin, and you have bought a bunch of bonds to pump up the returns on your pension fund so that it looks better and it works better, uh, long-term during a bull market or whatever with the assumption. And this was the big assumption going into this year that when stocks fell, bonds would rise. And when bonds fell, stocks would rise. False assumption. Yeah. And it's assumption, very popular assumption. Yeah. And when I, when I said earlier that, uh, pension returns are much more political than economic as far as what they expect and what they're required to have, uh, I wasn't kidding. <laughs> they, I mean, the cons- so, it's not. There's no academic economists involved in making these numbers to what's required or what so, we should expect. So, what happened when the bond market fell as the stock market fell? Well, the pension funds in England started getting margin calls. Cough up some money, or we go out and grab your bonds, and they're ours now. Or we sell them yeah. for a big, big loss. Yeah, and and you you eat that loss. So in order to get the money to meet the margin calls, the pension funds in the United Kingdom started selling their government securities, which because of a bad move by their government combined with rapidly rising interest rates, the value of the gilts, which is their treasuries, had fallen tremendously, in some cases 60%. Um, So they were selling into a down market, which exacerbated the selling even more and caused the British government need to step in and start giving them money to pension funds to meet their margin calls. Is that a big risk in the United States? No. Uh, Most, at least the federally regulated pension funds in the United States, have relatively little leverage, and the leverage they have is very carefully constructed so that they're not just borrowing willy-nilly so that interest rates are going to put them in the hole. Like I said, a typical U.S. leveraged position on a pension fund, this isn't absolute, but it's typical, would be apartment complexes. Well, the apartment complexes are able to raise rents as inflation goes along so that they remain profitable and if you see apartment complexes starting to uh, go bankrupt, which we've seen, I've, I've seen in my professional lifetime, then the pension funds are going to be in trouble. But the other thing, of course, that they are invested in, in many cases, is woodland. And the fall in the price of lumber may have caused some problems there, too. But uh, it, it's one of those things that across the board, if you're involved in a pension fund, you probably ought to be aware of how stable your pension fund is and who's backing it, if anybody yeah, there, there uh, a lot are, of people have had some very unpleasant surprises. There is something called the, there is a, a government pension fund insurance organization. It's it's chartered by the government, uh, PB, 
GC, I think it is. Pension Bar- Benefit Guarantee Corporation, yeah. It does, in effect, the government, if it's if you're if your pension fund and you're in a corporation is backed by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, you do have a certain level of guarantee from a government-charted organization. But it's a good idea to find out what it is because I know some people who were I have known some people who were in companies and they had their pension funds guaranteed and they were really, really happy until they realized that the guarantee was for a lot less per month than they thought they were going to get from their yeah. pension. There are, there's a lot more pension issues coming up here as well as in the United States. With rising interest rates, it's always a bad thing for pensions. Here here as well as in the United States? I, I'm sorry, here as well as in the United Kingdom. If I yeah. didn't mention it, I, I have the flu. Um, so oh. I may, my brain may think that I'm in the UK at the moment. I'm, I'm okay. not really sure. Um, well, you're not in the UK and you're not <laughs> in Europe, therefore you're elsewhere. Yeah. And, and I'll give you, yes. And I just, you have just proven that I'm not where I am because I, I can't be where I am if I'm elsewhere. Right. Got it. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, the uh, where I was going with this is I can give you some swift examples of uh, problematic uh, pensions. UPS has two major pensions. One of them is in the process of failure and they're trying to figure out how to fix it. The other is fully funded and doing well. Well, what's the difference? Well, some people are on one pension and some people are on another and some people are on both depending on when they got involved. Well, why is the first one failing if UPS has done so well on the other one? Because it was part of what's called a multi-employer plan before, where there were large groups of employers that got together and said, we'll take care of all of our employees in a group setting. We can save costs by putting it all in one big bucket, all that good stuff. The problem is that multiple of the larger employers that were partnering with UPS on these multi-employer on this multi-employer plan went bankrupt, and now they can't meet their pension obligations because they don't exist anymore. They've been completely redesigned to be something else, so their obligations are not the same. So, what does that mean? Well, if you're in a multi-employer group, you're supposed to pool all your expenses and take care of your combined employer group. Well. You can't do that if the majority of the employers don't exist anymore. When interest rates go up and you've got to meet a higher return requirement or dump in a bunch of money, you're the only employer that's dumping the money in for all these employees of companies that don't exist anymore. So there's a problem there. Uh, The other one that's really easy to point out is General Motors for... About a century, General Motors was considered ultra strong. There's no way it could fail. I, I, I have known people and have had clients that had the GM pension, and they said it's good as gold, which maybe was more truthful than they thought because gold is not um, just stuck in one place of high value. It fluctuates too. So General Motors, when it went away, Many of the people that received pensions from the General Motors pension took a massive pay cut. <laughs> so when, when you kind of look at there's existing issues with pensions and that large percentages of their portfolio are stuck in these bonds and those bonds have interest rates going up, which means their value is going down, which means that they have to put more money in. So 
I, uh, we could keep going on this subject because there's a lot of meat here. Uh, I had some things laid out here for unemployment rates in China versus the United States. And um, one of the things when, when China comes out and says that their GDP is 3.9%, um, this is still official data. So official data is one of those very heavily doctored areas in China. Um, in, let's see, in, we'll go ahead and use the same numbers, same time period in, um, as what we were using earlier. In December of 2019, the young, popu- young working population unemployment rate, so from 16 to 24, and 16 is the traditional age at which people go to work in China, not 18, um, is at 12.2% in December of 2019. That's pretty high, but in that population group, in that age range, we have a high unemployment too. Um, That's because you're unemployed if you worked the summer now in college. Education gets in the way of this. However, that's a higher rate than it had had for quite some time. It is now at 18.7% in that range. That's not good for China because that's the workforce that's doing the majority of the cheap labor manufacturing. The reason why it's 18.7% a month before it was at 19.9%. So why so high? Well, this is the lockdowns. When you have a close to 20% unemployment in a large portion of your population, in the United States, if we were looking at growth, and we've got all kinds of ways of looking at growth in China besides their public figure, the, the one that's working quite well right now is uh, satellite imagery at night of electrical power usage. And the electrical power usage in China is extremely reduced from where it was in 2019. You, you don't see that in a growing economy. You see that increase, not decrease. You see more lights on at night when the economy's growing, not less. And we look at satellite imagery going back over the last 30 years in China. They've been increasing the light with when we had good data, we could lay that out next to their light increase and we could see, yep, this is pretty on track for what we were talking about. And then the numbers diverge from the light. And there's an analogy in there or a metaphor in there if you'd like. Uh, but it comes down to their economy's in recession right now. Uh, they're saying they're in growth, but of course they're saying they're in growth. They have become a, an empire again. Um, so that's, that is what I had to say on the China subject. Uh, we've talked about their GDP being weird in the past. It's only been about five or six years that the numbers in their statistics departments have become screwy and only been in the past three and a half years or so since the trade war started that they didn't make any sense at all. And then they just got crazier over time. And now they don't, there's no tie to reality in them anymore. And yet we still see these unemployment numbers that are showing 20%. Uh, what do you have? Well, I've actually hit most of what I have, but the fact that the United States economy is running plenty strong and doing very, very well. Um, and 
one of the things I think people are perhaps overly concerned about is whether we'll have a recession next year. And and they there seems to be an almost ridiculous focus on it because sometimes during recessions you don't feel it. Sometimes when there's not a recession, you do feel it. Uh, and, and I think one of the things that is important to recognize is that with the momentum that the United States economy has right now and the savings we have, when we say recession, we're not talking about something like 2007 through 2009. We're talking about uh, a probably a technical recession during which very few people lose their jobs. Now, some people are already losing their jobs. If you're working, I'll be say this, if you're working in, in building construction and you're in any way dependent upon people being able to get inexpensive loans to build buildings, you're going to experience some pain in this recession. On the other hand, we still have a huge number more jobs open where people are being looked where people are looking for somebody to work then we have people who are unemployed who are looking for work. Uh, and, and so we're not, we're not even in the same county as a recession right now. We're churning along at a very nice speed. Could that change next year? It could. Uh, I was trying to figure out how it's going to change. Um, looking at the leverage that companies are using, if you're working for a company that's dependent upon high growth, if you're invested someplace where your bet, whether you know it or not, is on high growth, that's particularly large cap growth-oriented companies. Well, we've seen it happen. Uh, Meta has dropped, what, dropped 21%. Uh, it's down, what, some ridiculous amount. I don't remember how much it's down this year, but it's down a lot this year. Okay, what we're look. seeing is the, com- the companies that are driven by ads and high growth in ad spending are suffering some pretty severe pain right now. Uh, and I think they're going to continue to suffer some pain as we go into next year because as companies start to trim back because loans are costing them more, they're going to cut their ad spending. Very frankly, I am seriously looking at the why people are spending so much money on advertising. I know that sounds, well, you got to spend on advertising to make money. I get so much advertising that people are paying for everywhere I go that I don't pay any attention to whatsoever that it makes me wonder that they're spending that much money. So uh, one year, Meta's down 69%. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's, that qualifies as a lot. In yeah, my book. year to date, it's down 70.88. Yeah, that's a lot. So, yeah, and, and so what we're saying is that they're driven by uh, internet advertising primarily. Internet advertising is falling. They're spending, and they haven't cut their spending. They're actually spending more money now. That's the way that uh, Zuckerberg works. He dives into something. Their price to earnings that he ratio thinks is, is going to make a lot of money in the future. Their price to earnings ratio is below ten at this point, which is mm. you know that it's I don't and Facebook's never been that low on a PE ratio ever. So it's actually getting into a healthy price to earnings ratio, but and and he he's diving into a whole new technology that everybody consistently every article i read says is not profitable and not likely to be profitable and investors don't like it which means he'll probably make another few billion dollars uh because <laughs> frankly i tend to think that the meta universe is going to be a big thing it's not there yet the technology's not there yet but i think it's likely to be a big thing in the future yeah you can quickly relate that i mean it's the concept of what's happened in Zoom or Microsoft Teams was quite helpful when people couldn't travel 
getting that to a point where it's more comfortable than a phone call where you can figure out the controls and they're a lot more intuitive. It becomes a thing that that's, that's going to be the future. But I would remind you of Kodak, who were the massive innovators when it came to di- digital photography. And the CEO never- spent many billions of dollars switching, getting ready to switch and then beginning the switching process to only doing digital before anybody else was doing it. And wound up getting the CEO fired, getting Kodak lost a bunch of money. And two years later, digital pictures took off and Kodak was way behind the, the power curve because they had scrapped all of their research. So it's, it's just Fortunately, clear. Zuckerberg is smart enough to retain controlling interest in his company. So he's can still make it do what he wants, pretty much what he wants it to do. Right. Uh, but but the world's changing and it's changing very quickly, and it's probably a good idea to be on board. What we prefer to do is to pick up the pieces behind. We're we're value investors, and we prefer value investing. Basically, looking at companies and what their value is, rather than what we think their earnings might be in the future, so we don't experience that level of volatility. But we uh, were can- we were way ahead of the power curve when it came to digital shopping. And what it, we, the only problem is we were about 20 years ahead of the power curve. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we continue to be ahead of the power Now, the reason I think Meta is going to be big is very simple. I used to look forward to driving to Austin to go shopping. Yeah. Now it is a pain. Why is it a pain? Because there's a high probability I'm going to get stuck on I-35 somewhere. Yeah, a simple concept, easy to understand. We use a lot of big screens for our computers. They take up a lot of room. We need them to look at the data. If we could put a pair of glasses on and see even bigger screens and more of them all over wherever we put them in our room in an augmented reality sort of way, that's a lot more efficient than buying the equipment. Uh, it's, it's, you know, if, and as computers get smaller and smaller, if you can put a pair of glasses on and put a, the equivalent of a smartphone in your pocket, but it's really not a smartphone. It's your whole computer. You've got a whole computer system and interface system. You can see where we're going. It's not there yet. Meta may not be the first people to get there, but that doesn't mean that it's not the future that we're talking about. We're about out of time for this week. Man, we're talking about controversial new technology, electric cars, virtual meeting spaces. It's very strange. If you'd like to contact us off the air, Email addresses are Jeff and Jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango Papa Whiskey Charlie or the personal wealth coach. You can go to that address. You can get our newsletter, sign up for it. You can read our podcasts. You can um, call us uh, voicemail on the weekend, real live people during the week, 254-947-1111 or 1-800-914-PLAN. And uh, thank you very much for listening to the first hour. This has been the Personal Wealth Coach, and we appreciate you guys a lot more than we can say.